In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. Amen. All right, if you were with us last week, I spent about 50 minutes of the sermon talking about fallen angels, giants. It was fun. And then about 10 minutes after building out that framework of fallen angels or watchers and Nephilim and giants and how that particularly applies to the conquest of Joshua and Israel in the land of Canaan, driving out uh, these wicked people, I then uh, pulled out for us the primary principles of our text. Today, we're now finishing Joshua chapter 8 with the final five verses, or six verses. This is going to be Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Let's go ahead at this point and stand, if you will, for the reading of God's Word to show reverence and honor. I'll read our text in its entirety. When I finish reading these verses, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you'd respond by saying, thanks be to God. Our text for today is Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. The Bible says this, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, According to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Dealing at first with verses 30, 31, 32, and 33. Cross-referencing from these verses to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 4 through 8. This is where Joshua and Israel received this particular command to build this altar, to build it in this precise place, location, and to write upon the altar the law of the Lord. This command was given from the Lord through Moses earlier on. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 4 through 8, which says this, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. 
You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Matthew Henry, the late great Puritan, and commentating on the first few verses of our text today says the following, As soon as Joshua got to the mountains Ebal and Gerizim, without delay and without caring for the unsettled state of Israel or their enemies, he confirmed the covenant of the Lord with his people as appointed. This is what Joshua did as soon as he was able to do it. The command was given from the Lord through Moses when you enter into Canaan. One of the first things that you need to do is you need to renew the covenant between the Lord and the people. You need to offer um, a sweet fragrance to the Lord, build an altar, make sacrifice, and renew the covenant by reminding the people of all my commands. Remind them of the words of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, the promises of the covenant, both its blessings and its curses. And what we see is that Joshua is very um, expedient about bringing this to pass. However, the chronological order of what we've seen thus far throughout the book of Joshua is that he was not able to do this immediately upon crossing the Jordan, but they had to traverse from the point in which they crossed the Jordan over to Mount Ebal. And it took a little while and a couple significant things happened in between crossing the Jordan and making this altar and fulfilling the command of the Lord given through Moses, which we just saw in Deuteronomy 27. The two things that happened are as follows. The conquering of Jericho and the conquering, as we saw the last few weeks, of Ai. Jericho was a formidable opponent and they had to rely, that is Israel, had to rely on the supernatural strength and power of the Lord in order to conquer them by marching around the city for seven days, one time in silence for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day after marching around the city, the final time on the final day, then giving a great shout to the Lord. The earth, it seems, the earth opened up and swallowed the walls of Jericho, um, all but one portion of the wall, that is where Rahab, the prostitute, where her house was located in the wall because she saved the spies from her people and she was promised by them that her and her household would be spared. Everything else was uh, ultimately swallowed up into the earth. That is all the perimeter, the walls of Jericho. Then the people of Israel, they run down the enemy. They celebrate that God has brought about this initial victory of bringing down the defensive walls of Jericho but then they follow through. They pursue the enemy and they put everyone in Jericho to death. After coming off of that great victory, perhaps on an emotional high, uh, they then send approximately 3,000 armed men to go and conquer Ai. Now they think, you know, we need everything we've got when it comes to Jericho because Jericho, again, was a formidable opponent, a juggernaut there in Canaan. Uh, they thought maybe we can get away with a lot less in conquering Ai because it was a much smaller tribe. Uh, the Bible says that there were approximately 12,000 total. That would include the women and the children in Ai. So perhaps 5,000, give or take, um, able-bodied fighting men. And they thought with 3,000, especially if we surprise them, we'll be able to take Ai out. Instead, uh, they are swiftly defeated 
God is merciful even in their presumptuous attack, their arrogant attack of AI, even in their defeat. Um, they are sent fleeing, running, but only, I believe, off memory. I think it's only uh, 37 Israelites are actually uh, killed in this battle. Joshua then, next in the stories, he falls on his face uh, before the Lord, um, and he is grieving. He's mourning, um, asking the Lord, what, what's going on? And the Lord, in his mercy, he doesn't let him grieve for grief's sake. Grief that comes from the Lord, not worldly grief, but godly grief that is actually granted as a gift from the Lord. It's always a means towards a certain end. God does not grant grief to his people simply so that we might wallow in a puddle of our own tears. Uh, God is not uh, causing us to grieve uh, simply so that we would maintain in a perpetual state of depression. Rather, God grants grief as a means towards a particular end, and the end is repentance. And so God quickly comes to Joshua as he's grieving after this defeat by Ai, and he comes to Joshua and he says, that you don't need to grieve anymore. There's a simple solution. The solution is that you need to mortify sin within the camp of Israel. There's sin in the camp, put the sin to death, and then you'll be able to put to death the inhabitants of Ai. And so Joshua goes to the people and he numbers them. It goes tribe by tribe and then clan by clan, then household by household, man by man. And eventually the Lord reveals that it is a man named Achan, who has sinned against God and against his people Israel by taking some of the devoted things that were supposed to be either destroyed or put into the treasury of the Lord after Israel's defeat of Jericho. And so Achan and his whole household is put to death. Very likely uh, his household was uh, complicit, aiding and abetting their father in this sin. Uh, we know from the scripture that God does not punish, he does not put to death uh, the sons for the sin of the Father. And we know that this is God's written word that you and I are meant to follow. However, God is not bound. Uh, he is able to offer a divine decree if he sees fit to do otherwise. And yet, it's very likely that in this instance, uh, the children are being put to death because they are likely grown children who again participated in their father Achan's sin. So the whole household is not just guilty in a federal sense by the father, but the whole household was actually involved in this cover-up of taking the devoted things of Jericho and hiding them under the tent. After having put them to death, uh, it's not only that they rid Israel of the sin and now they're able to go back with 3,000 men as they did in their first attempt to AI and, and be granted success. Uh, it's not only dealing with sin, but it's also in dealing with sin, there's a newfound humility in Israel. And so in the same way that Israel took everyone up against Jericho, fully relying on the supernatural power of God, they now gain this same posture of heart, this same approach in dealing with AI. And the big principle that I drew out in the last 10 minutes of the sermon last week, after 50 minutes of talking about giants, the big point was this. Um, you got a, a, a formidable opponent, you need God. You've got a small opponent, you need God. That's the big principle. You're going up against Jericho. They have walls that stretch to the heavens. Uh, you, you've seen that the Nephilim are among them, that there are giants in the land. You're not going to be able to win unless the Lord is with you. 
And yet, in the very same breath, we can also say, now you're going up against AI. The whole, the whole tribe is only comprised of 12,000 people, perhaps four or five, maybe 6,000 fighting able-bodied men. Same thing. You need the Lord. And one of the things that we see from uh, the battle with Jericho all the way to the battle with AI and its first attempt and it being failed and then um, finding, scouting out the sin in Israel with Achan and then going the second time and bringing now 30,000 fighting men against a whole tribe that's only comprised of 12,000. What we see is this, uh, that, that human pragmatism is never going to be successful. Instead, what we need is to follow the script. In our case, that is to follow the scripture, to follow God's word. Uh, Joshua learned very quickly uh, that he needed to be utterly dependent on the word of the Lord. So when they deal with sin in Israel, with Achan, and now they're going for a second attempt with AI to conquer them, Joshua is meticulously following the word of the Lord that God is divinely revealing to him. And one of the things that happens is that Joshua actually holds out his spear pointed towards the city of Ai, and he keeps that posture of holding out the spear until all of Ai is conquered. And this is signifying that there is a supernatural power of the Lord at work, that even when uh, by human standards, the enemy is far outnumbered, there is still ultimately within the hearts of the people of God, there should be a posture of a reliance upon the Lord, that we cannot do anything great or small unless the Lord is with us. Pragmatism is not the need of the hour, um, but humble submission and obedience to what God has written in his word, following his orders and commands to the T is ultimately what brings about success. Obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. And so this is what Israel does, and they are granted a victory. And now that Jericho and Ai have been conquered, now they're able to move from the point at which they cross the Jordan River over to Mount Ebal and Gerizim in order to quickly fulfill, as quickly as they can, the command that was granted by the Lord through Moses in Deuteronomy 27. And again, that is to set up an altar, to offer burnt sacrifices, but to also write upon stones, to, to uh, interlay them with plaster, and then to write upon the stones uh, the covenantal words, the words of the law that God granted through Moses to renew the covenant between God and his people now that they are in the land which God had promised to them all along. And in this covenant, there are blessings and curses. There's law, commands, and then there are blessings for obedience to those commands, and there are also curses. And this is what Joshua is expedient to do again as soon as he is able to. So again, quoting Matthew Henry now, as soon as Joshua got to the mountains of Abal and Gerizim, he was not delaying, he was not procrastinating. They needed to defeat Jericho. They needed to defeat Ai, or they would not be able to come to this geographic location where the command through Moses was given to be carried out. So as soon as he arrived there with Israel, the mountains of Abal and Gerizim, without delay and without caring for the unsettled state of Israel, They've just finished two battles. I'm sure, practically speaking, there were many things that they could do to recover, to rejuvenate, to reunite. 
And yet the first thing they do is not dealing with their practical affairs or uh, strengthening their defenses against new foes and enemies, but rather Joshua confirmed the covenant of the Lord with his people as appointed. That is, as commanded by God through Moses earlier on when they were still in the wilderness, namely Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses four through eight. One of the verses that comes to mind, I think that draws out this principle that we're seeing in the first few verses of our text even further is Matthew chapter six, verse 33 a verse that probably most of you, if not all of you have memorized. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. This is the pattern that we see again and again with Joshua and Israel throughout this letter, throughout this book of Joshua as they enter into the promised land. There are first things that belong to the Lord that when they enter and defeat uh, Jericho, that all the devoted things are to be taken. That is all the things that were probably used in idol worship in, in Jericho to false gods that were made of silver and bronze uh, and gold, precious artifacts, precious materials. These things were to be taken into the treasury of the Lord. They would be melted down and used for other purposes. They were valuable things. Everything else apart from precious stones and devoted things was to be put to death. And that is the people, and that is also the livestock. There was nothing to be gained from the first battle that they won in the promised land. They just crossed over the Jordan River. They just came into the promised land after 40 years of waiting and wandering in the desert. This is their first enemy. God grants them supernatural success. They've been wandering around with the same pairs of clothes, God supernaturally um, allowing their sandals not to wear thin, their clothes not to wear out. They probably saw, hey, here's some new stuff. It would be nice to have some new stuff after 40 years. And Achan gave in to that temptation, the lust of the eyes. It says, I saw them and I took them. But what God had determined is that the first fruits of the land of promise that he by his power brought his people into, that those first fruits would be given back to him. Now notice what, what's, what's ironic and tragic is that after defeating the second tribe in Canaan, just a short time afterwards, namely Ai, Israel is permitted to take the spoil. They're permitted to plunder all the resources of Ai. If Achan had just been patient for a very little while, he would have been able to get all the things that his heart was desiring. And so once again, the principle that seems to jump off the text is this, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So whether it's giving the first fruits of the harvest back to the Lord, in the case of, of Jericho, taking the devoted things into the treasury of the Lord, rather than taking them for yourself, or Another example, as we find explicitly in our text for today, or whether it's setting up a monument and an altar and renewing the covenant with the Lord, saying that this land, we're only going to be blessed in it so long as we are faithful to the Lord who has given us victory and success, the Lord who brought us into the land. We can't say that, well, the Lord brought us here and these border tribes, border um, cities, have now been destroyed by the Lord's providence and his supernatural power. But now that the Lord has brought us into the land, 
He supernaturally allowed us to cross on dry land across the Jordan. He gave us victory over Jericho and victory over Ai. Now we don't need God anymore. Now that, that dog won't hunt. That's not going to work. And so instead, what Joshua does as a good leader is he says, we're going to, we, we had to rely upon the Lord to get in. And the same way in is the way on. The way in is the way on. The, the same reliance upon God, his mercy, his grace, his provision, the same reliance that we had to have on God in the wilderness to provide food every single day, manna from the sky. That's the same reliance that we're going to have to have in the land of promise. Obedience to his commands will bring blessing. And if not, if we are disobedient, there are curses in this covenant between Israel and God. And some of those curses that we find in the Old Testament, we don't have time to read every single passage that deals with this, but some of those curses is that you will be defeated by the sword, by opponents, by enemies. Also that you will be devoured by wild animals. Also that the land itself will spew you out. That there's something significant. This is not, I'm convinced, uh, unique to only the old covenant before the time of Christ in the Old Testament. There is something unique to living in obedience to God in the land. And I'm talking about literal, physical land. This is the origin of our own country. The founders, the covenanters, the Puritans, there was much devotion to being obedient to the Lord. And there's story after story after story of divine and supernatural providence that comes about. A harsh winters that, that, winters that could have taken out um, all of the European founders that came to America. And yet in the bottom of the ninth, in the, the very last moment, God would bring some kind of supernatural provision and the pilgrims would be saved and they would be able to live another year. And there was this meticulous devotion, especially among the Puritans, to practical obedience to the Lord, not just doctrinal accuracy in the realm of theory, but practical obedience to the Lord and everyday life on a Tuesday afternoon. When you read the Puritans, it's almost overwhelming. And this is one of the biggest criticisms of the Puritans. Uh, but the Puritans, you would see, all right, here's the text, revelation, interpretation, application. Revelation. The revelation is not the man saying, I have a dream. I have an idea. I have a strategy. It's, I have a text. And so the revelation would be the text from God, a text of scripture. Next would be interpretation. That is, I have a faithful exegesis of the text. This is what God means by the text. Now, real quick, a uh, quick pause here. That's very different than a lot of modern evangelical Bible studies. Because what do you do in a modern evangelical Bible study? You sit in a circle and you might have a text from scripture. That, that's a good start. And then what you often will hear is you go around, take turns and say, what does it mean to you? At which point the response should be, it doesn't matter. I don't care what it means to you. Oh, it means that to you? Great. And I think that's a, a good pastoral candor to have. You know, I think that, that is love for the sheep. Sometimes the sheep need to hear. No, it doesn't matter what it means to you. The late great R.C. Sproul, he said this, and I think it's profound and true and well said. He said that any given text of scripture only ever has one true interpretation. 
Now here's the next part. And yet that same passage of scripture with only one true interpretation does in fact have virtually limitless applications. And this is what you would see of the Puritans. The Puritans would say in their preaching and their writing and, and, and everything that they did in their public ministry, they would say revelation text, interpretation, the one faithful exegesis of the text, that is what God intends to say through this particular passage of scripture. Then application, and it would always be plural, applications. You read, uh, for instance, you, you read um, Thomas Watson. I read some of his old sermons and you'll, you'll see if, the, if it's 50 pages long, it'll be text, half a page, interpretation, 20 pages, and then applications, 30 pages. And he would say, I mean, Charles Spurgeon is another example. A, a sower went out to sow. One of his famous sermons where he's dealing with the four soils and he doesn't even get past that phrase. A sower went out to sow. Okay, what are the different soils and what does Jesus say? Is the, you know, he doesn't even get there. It's just a sower went out to sow and it's, it's a whole sermon just on that phrase. And what does it mean to go out? And what is a sower? And what is it to sow? And, and it's just, and it's not just interpretation, it's application, 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 practical, 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 practical. And this is where you get the, the, the term puritanical. Puritan was a pejorative. Christian was a pejorative. In the first century, oh, you're just little, you're just little clones of Jesus. Hey, I like that. You're saying we look like Jesus, little Christ? We can work with that. Okay, Christians. Yeah, well, that's what we are. We're Christians. You're puritanical. You're meticulously devoted to obeying God in every aspect of life. I'm sorry, what was that a criticism? Uh, okay, Puritans. Yeah, we, we can work with that. You want nations and even civil rulers to honor God. You're a Christian nationalist. What, what was that? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I am a Christian nationalist. I can work with that. The next label you throw at me, I, I may not be able to work with, but I can work with that one. So I'll use it. A tale as old as time. 2,000 years of people who hate God, throwing a pejorative on the people of God, the people of God, if they can work with it, if it is at least fundamentally true, then they name it. They say, ah, that's it. Uh-huh. We believe the nation should be Christian. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we are Puritans. Uh-huh. We are little Christ, little images of Christ. We are Christians. The land. When there is disobedience in the land, before the cross, and I believe on this side also, the land will spew you out. In a nutshell, I've said it before, I'll say it again. My contention with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters is that I think they take the new covenant and stretch it too far as a one-size-fits-all to encompass multiple different aspects of what may be going on in the life of the Christian and in societal life in a corporate sense as well. My contention with the Baptist is that although I think they're right about the parameters of the new covenant, my contention with the Baptist is that they behave and pretend as though the new covenant is the only covenant there is. God makes covenants. If you're married, you're in a covenant. 
And if you're a Christian and you're married, then it should be a Christian covenant. It's not the new covenant, but it is a Christian covenant. We know it's not the new covenant. We know it's not eternal because Jesus specifically, explicitly says that we are neither in marriage nor given in marriage in the age to come. When the Sadducees came to trap him, the Sadducees differed from the Pharisees in the sense that they did not believe in the resurrection. And they come to to give a, a gotcha question to Jesus pertaining to the resurrection. They don't actually believe it's even going to happen, but they say, if there is a resurrection, what happens if there's a woman who's married and her husband dies and yet she had no offspring? Moses in his law says that it becomes the obligation of her brother, the nearest kinsman redeemer, to further his late brother's line, his lineage, by marrying her and giving to her offspring. Well, in this hypothetical scenario, Jesus, uh, the next brother dies and the next one dies and the next one dies and she has seven brothers, none of them producing offspring for her and then she, last of all, dies also. To which brother will she be married to in eternity at the resurrection? And Jesus says, neither. None of them. So marriage, according to Jesus, is not eternal. We will be married to Christ corporately as his bride, the church eternally with Christ as the groom, but marriage as we know it, human marriage in this life is not eternal. And yet it's still a covenant. And if you're a Christian, it's a Christian covenant. Let me go one step further. It doesn't even have to work within the confines of federal headship, according to the scripture, to be a Christian covenant that you don't even have to be the husband who is, according to the scripture, the head of his wife. You could actually be a Christian wife with an unbelieving husband. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you would still have a Christian marriage. And it would be a Christian marriage in the sense that the children would be holy, that the faith of the wife, who is not even head of the covenant, her federal head is her husband. In this scenario, Paul paints a picture of an unbelieving husband. And even with the head of the covenant, the husband being unbelieving, but the wife being believing, her faith, even a subordinate in the covenant with her husband, her faith is still enough for the children in the sight of God to be considered holy. And whatever you do with holy, however you define it in that sense, you got to do something with the word. So my point is this. We have covenants, even today, even in New Testament times, 2,000 years on this side of the cross, and we have covenants that are Christian covenants, covenants with the Lord that are separate or distinct from the new covenant. So can a people corporately, living in a particular place, a particular people in a particular place, can they order themselves as a body politic, as a nation or a unified constitutional republic? And can they behave in such a way in their laws and legislation and practice that says we are Christian? And if they do so, 
Will the Lord see that? Not being Israel, the nation state in the Old Testament, but a, a, a Gentile nation in the New Testament time. Would the Lord see that and say, I like that. And I'll bless that. Well, I, I think that that's begging a question that, that has already been answered time and time again for the past 2,000 years of church history. That the Lord does recognize that and he does bless that. And that's not to say that it's the same. Again, I've given all the theological disclaimers. I'm not saying that a nation today can have a covenant with the Lord that is saving, eternally saving, justifying for every individual person in that nation. There's one saving covenant. That is the new covenant. And there's only one entrance into the new covenant. That is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The replacement, if there is any, and I don't pre prefer that term, but I would say the fulfillment of the nation state of Israel under the old covenant in the Old Testament is not America, but the church. The church is the replacement for Israel. And so the church is now a holy nation in the new covenantal sense, in the salvific eternal sense. But that's not to say that your marriage, which Jesus explicitly says is not eternal. It is distinct. It, it is a covenant but it is not the new covenant. That's not to say, well, my marriage, because it's not the new covenant, there is nothing Christian about my marriage at all. Or there is nothing covenantal about my marriage at all. So for my Baptist brothers and sisters, cut it out. That is so silly. That is such a truncated view of covenant theology. There's a new covenant. It's the only saving covenant. Yes and amen a thousand times. The church... Not America, but the church replaces Israel, only the church. It's a holy nation. Entrance into this covenant is faith alone. Yes and amen a thousand times. And are there other covenants? Yes. Can you start a business and even in your bylaws with the business have Christian language, even quoting scripture? This business exists for the glory of God. And, and start each day with your employees with a, a word and prayer and practice Christian principles of integrity and say, this exists to the glory of God. And will God recognize that? Will God bless that? Yeah, I think so. Ordinarily, as, as a guarantee, no. But ordinarily, as a general principle that more often than not rings true, yes. Let me give you a couple other examples. I'm laboring this point because... We, we are anemic on this theological area. Another example would be children. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, he restates the command and he restates without equivocation the promise. And he behaves, now remember the timeline, this is after the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul behaves, he assumes as though both the commandment and its promise regarding children is just as good as it was in the Old Testament, the command that he's actually quoting. In the Old Testament, in the Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20, the fifth commandment is that children should honor their father and mother. And this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with them and that they would live a long life in the land. Then in Ephesians 6, Paul restates the commandment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. 
And then, of course, he qualifies and disclaims and says, but the promise isn't good anymore because this is the New Testament and now we're Gnostics and everything physical and tangible and temporal is of no account to God whatsoever. The only thing that matters is faith. And so if you have faith in Jesus Christ, personally, you will be saved. If you obey your children, you'll probably die. Or obey your parents, you'll probably die. No, that's not what he says. All right, that being facetious. What he actually says is, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And it is the first commandment with a promise, assuming the promise is still good, that you may live a long life in the earth. Again, not a 100% guarantee, but it is a general principle. More often than not, it comes to pass. And it doesn't actually have to do with the new covenant. This is separate. It's separate. The new covenant, the only entrance is faith, saving faith in Jesus. And the blessing is eternal life. But in the instance of children obeying parents, a child can be obedient to their parents without actually being regenerate, without actually being saved. And an obedient child, even an, an unbelieving obedient child who is obedient to their parents ordinarily will do better in life and live a longer life than their rebellious peers. If you have two children and one is rebellious to their parents, the first human authority given to them in their life. And out of that, they become rebellious to all other authorities. Their life is going to be challenging. Their life is generally going to be difficult. And if they're extremely rebellious, their life may literally, in a physical sense, be cut short because of their rebellion. They could commit some kind of crime, be arrested, it may be a crime that merits the death penalty, or it could just be in their rebellion. They, they give themselves over to substance abuse and drugs and alcohol and these kinds of things and get behind, God forbid, the wheel of a car and in their life. So in general, this promise is still true. Again, my point is this. In the New Testament, you still have covenants besides merely the new covenant. New covenant is superior. New covenant is unique. New covenant is eternal. Entrance to the new covenant is exclusively faith. The new covenant is the exclusive covenant that is eternally saving. All those things being said, there are still other covenants in life. Marriage being but one example. And for a Christian, whatever covenant we engage in, I'm simply advocating that if a Christian has a covenant, it should be a Christian covenant. And by being a Christian covenant and upholding Christian principles and explicit acknowledgement to the Christian triune God and being obedient to his commands, I believe that there will be, again, not 100% guarantee, but ordinarily as a general principle, there will be not eternal salvation blessings, but temporal earthly blessings that follow. And children obeying their parents in the Lord and living a long life on the earth is an example. It is an example. And so this is what we see Joshua doing. Joshua and Israel are saying, God brought us into the land. God got us here. And all the inhabitants of the land are wicked and idolaters. And God is using us as his tool to bring his just wrath to bear on these wicked nations that have rebelled against him for centuries. For their iniquity, the fullness of their iniquity has come to fruition. But in the same way that we're being used by God as his instrument 
to bring retribution and justice to these wicked nations if we engage in wickedness, if our hearts turn from the Lord, if we rebel against him, we too will be driven out of the land. We too, what the land will spew us out. We too will experience curses. That there are blessings in the covenant that we have with God, but also curses. Now, all that being said, a little bit more heavy lifting theologically. I am a Baptist. I am a 1689 Second London Confession Baptist. And so, speaking again of the new covenant, that is between Christ and the church, the only entrance being faith and the reward being eternal life. Of this new covenant, I believe that one of the things that makes it better is that there are no curses. It's the only covenant that God has ever made that does not contain within it curses. And the reason it does not contain curses is because Jesus took all of God's wrath for those curses. He was accursed so that you would not be cursed. And so for those who are members of the new covenant by grace alone, not by works, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the only saving object of our faith, Jesus Christ, his person and his finished work, for those who are members of this new covenant, all God's promises for you as a new covenant member are yes and amen. There are no curses because Jesus was accursed so that you might be blessed. But again, the problem is the Presbyterian stretches the covenant too far and the Baptist behaves as though this covenant is the only one that exists. We need to speak of the new covenant carefully in new covenant explicit terms as it pertains to the church and as it pertains to faith and as it pertains to eternal salvation. Outside of that, we need to be able to speak of other covenants, this side of Calvary. We need to be able to say that these other covenants, if we're Christians, should explicitly be Christian covenants. And because they're not the new covenant, we should recognize that these other temporal earthly covenants, they do contain both blessings and curses. So a national covenant, if the nation is rebellious, the nation will receive consequences. In a familial covenant, Jesus gives, he gives a condition for divorce. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's a Christian marriage and therefore you can't divorce ever because it's all grace. There are no curses in this covenant, no consequences in this covenant. No, Jesus actually says, although it's narrow, he gives two criteria. The one that Jesus provides is adultery. The second that Jesus gives through the apostle Paul in his writings is abandonment. And theologically, I and others that I trust would hold that these are really just two sides of one coin. It's really one criteria. Abandonment always, in all my experiences pastorally, abandonment always results in adultery. And adultery always results in abandonment unless there is quick 
deep, spirit-wrought repentance. You abandon your spouse, you become an adulterer. You commit adultery without repentance, you eventually abandon your spouse. But the point is this. You can have a Christian marriage and you can break that covenant. It is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And it's a covenant that can be broken. The new covenant cannot. It is an unbreakable covenant because it is founded upon better promises. It, it, it includes blessings without curses. Every promise is yes and amen. An unbreakable, eternal, saving covenant that God has established through the federal head of Christ Jesus, the second and better Adam, and it is received not by works. It is a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works, to be received by faith alone. And yet other covenants, such as familial covenants, particularly displayed in marriage, do actually have criteria to where even permissible by the Son of God himself, namely Jesus Christ, the covenant can be broken because of disobedience. So whether it's a familial covenant or a national covenant, these covenants do exist in the New Testament age. They should be Christian covenants if we ourselves profess to be Christians. And they are covenants that include not only blessing as the new covenant does, but also curses. They are covenants that can be broken. And that's right where our nation is, in my assessment. It is not as though America is not a Christian nation. America was a Christian nation with a Christian covenant, and we are currently in the process of apostasy and breaking that covenant. And the judgments will be swift and severe. That's where we are. That's a little bit of covenant theology for you. From a Baptist perspective, but hopefully not a truncated, oversimplified Baptist perspective. So the first thing that Joshua does is a thing that I believe nations still should do today. That is, the Lord has brought prosperity and blessing. Let's immediately acknowledge that it comes from the Lord. This is not by our own doing. Let's renew a covenant with the Lord and the people. And let's write out all of his commands and remind the people that God's blessing is not unconditional, not as it pertains to nations. This is not the new covenant at C point A, everything I talked about for the last 25 minutes, all that stuff. There is a condition. If we are faithful as a people, a body politic in this place, in this time, this land, we will be blessed. Ordinarily, we will be blessed. If we are faithless, if we forget the commands of the Lord our God, if we transgress his commands and we live in open, prideful, blatant rebellion, the land itself, which honors Christ, will turn against us and spew us out. The land will be your enemy. Jesus said, if you don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out. The land, brothers and sisters, remember this, the created cosmos, it knows who its creator is. Rocks know who their Lord is. The dirt has an allegiance. 
It is not to the nation that has been there for so and so many hundreds of years. It's allegiance, the mountains, the trees, the rivers, the rocks, their allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made them. And when we turn on Jesus, the only created being in all the earthly cosmos that has ever rebelled against Jesus, when we rebel against Jesus, those who are in allegiance with him, namely the land, the worldly cosmos, becomes our enemy. And it will spew us out. These are things that for modern Darwinistic, materialistic, Western 21st century people we think are too spiritual and too wacky. No, these things are true. God made a magical world and this magical world is on his side. When people rebel against him, there are disease, pestilence, and when people believe and trust in the Lord, again, not a 100% guarantee, but ordinarily, there is blessing. It is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. The West has been blessed because of its obedience to Jesus Christ. That has not been a perfect obedience. There are features and there are bugs. Now, there are some who hate Christ and therefore hate any Christian society or even a society with a Christian history and therefore want to paint the West as though it's the worst society that has ever lived. Which is easy to do. Do you know why? Because it's true? Because the West is worse than the rest of the No. Because the West kept records. It's hard to prove the sin of societies 300 years ago that were oral traditions and didn't know how to write. It's a lot easier when you have a society that keeps records and even unflattering records because of their devotion to the intellect and integrity. There's also no other nation that is willing to be no other society, civilization, I should say, that's willing to be introspective and actually point out their own flaws. You don't see China doing that. You don't see China looking over the last 500 years saying, where did we fail? Or where, where could we grow? Right? You don't see North Korea saying, you know, I feel like in some ways we've been oppressive and, and, and we've been prejudiced. And I think, right? The, the West is the worst society that's ever lived. No, it's the only society that's ever lived that was willing to admit it had problems. It's the best, not the worst. And the point is, it's not the best because of skin pigment. It's the best because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his sovereign grace, he did immense, wonderful things among Western society over the last 500 years at least since the Reformation and arguably 1,500 years if we stretch back all the way to Constantine, and certainly a thousand years if we stretch back to King Alfred and the origination of common law directly from Deuteronomy. So all of this being said, in a nutshell, the principles of sowing and reaping are still at play. We live in God's world, 
And the Father who made the world in which we live, he has rules for living in his world. And when these rules are followed, there are, again, ordinarily blessings, benefits. When these rules are broken, there are consequences. We may call them curses. There are principles, rules built into the fabric of the world that God made. Nature is one of those rules. There's a certain point where where man is actually called within the dominion mandate, renewed after the fall, post-lapsarian, and further renewed and redeemed even in Christ in the Great Commission. There is a sense in which we are called to push back not on nature, notice this difference, but on the curse which is upon nature. So when man invents certain technology, for instance, to bring about a massive harvest with tractors instead of just pulling something with an ox, that's a good thing. That's fulfilling dominion. That's pulling back on the curse on nature. But when man attempts to somehow upload his consciousness to the cloud and and attain eternal life, that's not pushing back on the curse upon nature. That's pushing back on nature itself. That's like Babel. And when man does that, not pushing back on the curse within his given state as man, what he's called to do, but he actually tries to usurp God and be a God himself, then the full force of God through nature will wipe him out. Classic example, every horror movie ever made. That's the plot. Spoiler alert, every horror movie has now been ruined. I'm giving you the plot of all of them. The plot is arrogant people try to be God, use technology, try to do something that's not pushing back on the curse on nature, which is good, but push back on nature itself. Oh, male and female. That's just a social construct. Oh, dinosaurs. Let's bring them back. Right? We can control it. Nature finds a way. All of a sudden, the lesson you learn is you get eaten by a T-Rex. So these things are still true. Sowing and reaping. A man who casts his bread seven times upon the water stands. That's diversification of investments. Biblical principle, ordinarily, not 100% guarantee, but ordinarily, general principle, better return. Sow, reap. If you will not work, you don't eat. The nation that fears the Lord will be exalted. That's what the Bible says. And it doesn't just say that about Israel. It's a general rule for any nation that would fear the Lord. So Joshua says, the Lord brought us here and only the Lord is able to keep us here. The way in is the way on. Obedience in and obedience is required to stay. Let's remind the people of the covenant. This covenant is not the new covenant, the eternal saving covenant. Therefore, this covenant does include both blessings and curses. If we're obedient to the Lord, there will be tangible, temporal, earthly blessings in the land. The land will work with us and not against us. If there is disobedience, the same way the wicked inhabitants in the land right now are being driven out, so too the land will spew us out also. 
That was true in Joshua's time. It's true in our time. Covenants include these principles. There are covenants. They don't all have to be the new covenant. It's not crazy. Evangelicals need work. All right, let's finish now. Afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly. So we've got some family integrated worship going on in our text today. Before all the assembly, the women, the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Well, I'm not Israel by birth. I'm not native. Uh, do you live here? Are you in this land? Then the Lord is your God. If not, leave. The stipulation is that God will be your God. Our God will be your God. Our people will be your people. You don't get to live in Israel and be an idolater. If you're going to live in Israel, Israel will be your people and Yahweh will be your God. And so Joshua includes the alien and the sojourner who are not illegal immigrants, but those who are welcomed, welcomed into Israel and permitted, given permission to stay. They were not native Israel. They are immigrants, but legal. They should be viewed as legal immigrants and not legal immigrants to come into Israel and set up a little Moabite colony. No, to come into Israel and behave and worship as Israel. You want to be in America? Do it legally. You want to be in America? Be American. And the biggest part of that is not the type of food that your culture celebrates. The biggest part of that is culture comes from the Latin word cultus, which means worship. Nations have gods. There is such a thing. Nobody believes there's such a thing as a Christian nation in 2023, but we sure as heck believe there's such a thing as Muslim nations. We know that's a thing. It's not whether, but which. If you will not have Christ, you will have a God. It will still be a theocracy. The question is which God? It will either be the triune God or it will be some other God. Well, America's neutral, not for long. That is a luxury of Christendom past. But as we continue to turn further and further from our Christian past, all of a sudden, the myth of neutrality will prove to be the myth that it is. And you'll have cities like we have right now in America with five times a day citywide prayer calls to worship Allah. You can be a Christian nation or you can be a pagan nation. Secularism was always a joke. It was always a joke because it's very hard to sell a Christian nation on worshiping pagan gods. So what do you tell them? Instead, nobody's going to go for that. It's too on the nose. What you tell them instead is you say, everyone can privately worship a Christian god, but we just want a neutral public square that allows for victims not to be victimized. Don't you want to be empathetic? And you throw a little bit of the 19th Amendment in there, and you got a lot of people who want to be empathetic. And here we are. So, honor the Lord. 
the law of God, both its blessings and its curses, have been issued to all people, not just God's people. It's for men, women, and children, not merely heads of households. It is for the sojourner as well as the native by blood, and in God's law is contained both blessings and curses. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. This is the law of sowing and reaping. You can no more change this law than a gnat can be successful in flying through Niagara Falls. It doesn't work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would believe it. We pray that we would be faithful first locally, starting with our marriages, our children, our homes. But beyond that, that we would be faithful in our vocation, in our political and civil involvement in our city, our town, and our county, and our state, and that God, by Christians scattered, sprinkled as the salt of the earth all over our republic, that by your grace that you might bring about revival and reformation, that you would turn the hearts of the people back to you, that we would cry out and call upon you, and that you might relent in sending the disaster which we, by our wickedness, most certainly deserve. We thank you that you are a long-suffering God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy and grace. We pray for conversion, salvation for millions in our nation. And we pray, Lord, not only for converted hearts, but for those who are converted to be discipled as the Great Commission stipulates that they would be taught to obey all Christ's commands. That part of the Great Commission is not just preaching the gospel and you bringing about conversion through faith and baptism into the name of the triune God, but then discipling nations to obedience. Help us to be obedient. Not to earn salvation, which is only earned by Christ's obedience and received by us by grace through faith in him but obedience that comes about as a response of gratitude for the free grace we have already received. We pray this for your glory and for our good and for the good of nations. They are your inheritance. We know that you will garnish the nations to yourself. They have been promised to you by your Father. We pray that in our lifetime, if you would be so kind that you might use us and our lives in some small way to bring this about. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.